Well, um, this is such a joy for me to be here. Now, he shared a story when he came and preached for us, and then he tried to share it just now, but he didn't share the full story. I was on his assessment team trying to figure out if he should be a lead pastor. Um, They picked the people with the highest discernment. That's me. Um, One of the things I was really trying to sit there and pray and figure out if this guy is supposed to be uh, the lead pastor here. And I'm praying and uh, he's talking and we're asking him all these questions. And his phone is sitting face up on the the, uh, table. And while while this interview is going on, I see a call on his phone from somebody named Duncan420. Duncan 420, okay? And so uh, I go, hey, uh, your weed dealer is calling you. <laughs> and then he tried to backpedal and explain, no, this is a guy I know, blah, 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 and go into the whole thing. And I'm like, hey, listen, no shame. I just wanted you to know your weed dealer is calling you. Uh, so Duncan, if you're here today, uh, hit me up, okay? Um, <laughs> I, you know, last time, I, the years ago, we, we've been preaching here for years now, and uh, my, one of my favorite things is bringing my daughters up with me, and the first time we came, I, you know, I said, hey, let's buy a souvenir, and so they'd go buy souvenirs, my youngest daughter, and I, and I just don't pay attention, whatever it is, you know, pick something out, says Flagstaff on it, and the next day we're coming to church, and she's got this bright tie-dyed shirt on, and on it, it says, getting high in Flagstaff, that's what it says, and I'm like, did I buy you that, or <laughs> I'm like, that's what happens when my wife's not here to make sure that this stuff is there and so you know I thought it was just a part of Flagstaff out here and you know that's what you're here with so I appreciate you so I I think I made the wrong choice and we did let him become the lead pastor here my discernment wasn't high that day no I am just so thankful for Flagstaff and the work that God is doing here at Redemption Flagstaff uh, I have to say, you know, we all have gone through a season of change, and maybe for you all it's felt distant uh, because, you know, you're in your local church, you already have your community here, but you felt the the exhaustion that it, it, it demanded of Anthony and some of your elders, and you felt some of the questions like, why did this happen? Whose fault is it? You know, we kind of go into these mindsets of trying to figure out whose fault it is. And the reality is, I just I, before I preached, I just wanted to say a couple of things. One is, if there's any way that I have caused any sort of pain as a part of the leadership of that uh, of of redemption, uh, any sort of pain or confusion, I want to apologize for that because that was in no way. Uh, something that I would have desired to do, but I know it is a ripple effect when things start to separate. And uh, I just want you to hear that from me. I am so uh, apologetic, and I'm sorry for the ways that we have caused any sort of pain. But also another thing that I wanted to say is thank you. Thank you from me and from... um, from the churches that are starting this beloved community, family of churches together. Thank you for uh, trusting God and trusting us to kind of continue to build this together. A vision for what God would have for us to be. 
That this really is a vision move. It's not something that is actualized yet, but it's a dream that God has placed inside of us to lean in and be a family of God, a family of churches, a connected group of churches. There's so much scripture in regards to the churches in different cities and different regions, seeing each other as family, praying for one another, and caring for one another. There's something powerful about having a local church, but there's also something about powerful about local churches being connected in love and, and learning from one another. So as we endeavor on this journey, I just wanted to thank you. It meant so much to us. Anthony, it meant so much to us that you have uh, decided to partner and covenant with us and pray about what it would be as we move forward. So please be praying for us as we continue to press into these things of what it means to be a beloved community, but also lean in, pray and lean in, meaning our connections with one another can't just be words, right? We really have to start to build a, a community together and lean in on those ways, and uh, those things will be organic, and, it, and we're going to be intentional. But I wanted to just kind of both apologize for any weight that hurt, but also thank you for your forgiveness, your grace, and your continued trust as we move into this new season together. I was captured by the vision of Beloved Community years ago. I was captured by it because of its roots, and I was captured by it because of the community that carried that was a group of people on the margins of society who instead of responding in violence towards discrimination, decided to take up love. Love for one another, but also take up love and nonviolence towards those who were hurting them and persecuting them. And in that developed some real key markers of what it means to be a beloved community. And even if we don't remember those names or have affiliation with it, there is um, some beauty in our history, but it's hard to uh, look at Scripture and not see this word beloved all over the place. The father calls his son, this is my beloved son. The son calls us beloved. The apostles would, would call these churches beloved people. John, 1 John has so much in it where this word beloved is over and over and over again. And so when we get into these words, it's, it's biblical and it's historical, but something that is dear to my heart is you don't even have to know the biblical and the historical realities when you hear something like beloved community. It just does something to your heart. And it changes the way you see yourself and others. And that's why when it comes to what a beloved community is, today as we talk about the image of God, 
One of the things we have to do is, is step into what we have come out of. Uh, one theologian says this, that tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Let me say that one more time because I, I like how he words that, that tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. There's nothing wrong with tradition. But once tradition turns in traditionalism, all of the sudden we are worshiping our tradition and we are so shaped by our tradition that all of a sudden it, our faith is dead and boxed in. But tradition is rich it allows for us to take things from what we have learned from and to carry those things forward. But what we don't want to carry forward is the boxes that tradition can create. And one of those traditions that all of us have been a part of in one way or another, or even if you didn't know, we're a part of a tradition that starts our theology at the fall. It starts our theology at total depravity. This is where we begin uh, our statements of faith in, in, in our tradition is that we are totally depraved. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that point of theology is extremely important. The fall is a sever in the story of God, and it creates a huge point of tension when we rebelled against God. The fall is a significant part of the story, but it's not where the Bible starts. The Bible doesn't start at the fall. So we shouldn't start our theology at the fall. The place we should start our theology is where God reveals himself in Genesis. We should start our theology in creation. And if we start there, rather than seeing the world through the lens of the fall, we get to develop imagination of how God originally designed the world. And today our sister read to us a beautiful text where God creates male and female in his image and likeness. In his image and likeness. So as we're talking about seeing the world through this lens, if we start at creation and we're going to talk about the Imago Dei or the image of God, we have to ask the question, what does this do when we see the world starting at creation? Well, first, we see God different but we also see ourselves in relationship to God different. And then we also see others differently. Here's what the theology of the image of God does. It does two things simultaneously. One, it shows that man 
mankind, humans, have a special relationship with God. God has a special relationship with humanity. Out of all of his creation, which he loves and he gives value to, when it comes to day six, it's the apex of his creation, and he declares something different on this day. All of the days he would say, let there be, and then he would say, it's good. But on this day, he said, let us make. See see the difference? He broke the pattern with us, y'all. He broke the pattern. Instead of saying, let there be, he says, let us make. Which means this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us, this Trinitarian God of the Bible, showing that even within himself, there is this distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit. There is this equality. There's no hierarchy there. There's one. Let us make something there that we have a special relationship with. And he creates male and female. And when he creates them, he creates a special relationship with them. His image, his likeness. And he shows that unique relationship when he comes down into creation and walks with them. And enjoys them. But he also shows that special relationship when he tells them, like was read today, I'm giving you rule and dominion over the world. That's the other side of what happens when you start with the Imago Dei. Not only does it show his special relationship with us and our special relationship with him, it also shows our role in the world. It shows who we are and what we've been called to do, and that is to image him into the world. To be a reflection of the one who bears, we bear his image. We are to show to the rest of creation and to the rest of the world, we are to image the one who has designed us. So it shows a relationship and it shows our role. And if we start there in our theology, it changes how we see God, ourselves, and others. And let me press on us. If we start at the fall, it changes the way we see God, ourselves, and others. And if our theology starts with the fall, we will constantly be seeing God angry with us. We won't see a special relationship with him, but we will see him as cursing us and angry with us. And we have to try to earn our relationship back with him. We, we start at the fall. It changes the way you see God instead of him poetically creating and loving us and designing us and seeing a special relationship with us, what we will see is a frown on his face and us separated from him. 
If we start at the fall, not only does it change the way we see God, it changes the way we see ourselves. Instead of image bearers of God, we will see ourselves as broken and failing and constantly separated. So we'll walk in this position of, I've got to try to earn my way back. We'll walk under this curse of, I've got to figure out how to overcome this and, and, and go through the thorns and the thistles, all those kinds. If we start there, it changes how we see ourselves. And, and brothers and sisters, it changes how we see other people. We constantly see people through the lens of their failures, their sins, their brokenness. This is why I think it's important for us as a beloved community to start our theology where God starts his revelation to us. That he has created us in his image and likeness. And here's what happens when, um, when the fall takes place, we then start looking to other images and other likenesses and we create our own images and that's called idolatry. We create things in our own image or we create things and we start to reflect their image, which is why I want us to look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And if you could put verse 13 up there, here's what I want to do. I want to read a verse at a time and make some comments. Uh, this uh, section of scripture years ago, uh, God used in my heart to uh, kind of bring to light me being created in the image and likeness of God. And it really encouraged me and challenged me. And then when we were studying this text together, Anthony brought this text up again. And when he brought it up, I just remembered how the Lord had used this in my life. And, and so I, I wanted to talk about this to you today because it's both personal and I was reminded in a key point this last couple weeks of, man, wow. Being created in the image of like in the likeness of God is profound. So I want you to look at how Jesus responds. Verse 13 says this: later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, the first word I want you to look at is that word later. Why would the writer of, uh, of this, why would Mark put later? Well, the reason he puts later there is because he wants you to think of what happened before this. <laughs> He's carrying on a story. So simply, he doesn't want you to disconnect this story from the story that just happened. Okay, so now we have to ask the question, what just happened? So if you look back to the beginning of Mark chapter 12, you'll, you'll see Jesus telling a parable. And, and, and because I, I don't have time to preach it, and, and, and I, I want you to go back and meditate on it, the parable is about a vineyard owner who leaves his vineyard to some farmers. Notice this. This is starting to sound like God who creates the world, 
gives it for someone else to steward. Okay? So he's telling this story about a vineyard owner who leaves it to a farmer and they were to care for it and that owner sends some of his workers to go and collect his share of the harvest. This should remind us in this text about God sending prophets and and God sending those before to come and to share in what the harvest of the world was. And what do they do to those servants? They beat them. They harm them. So the owner says, what I'll do is I'll send my son. I'll send one who is in my image and in my likeness. I will send my very representation. I'll send my son. Surely they won't do anything to him. And they kill the son. And then Jesus says in this parable, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants who give the vineyard to others and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the reason why I want to share this is Jesus has just shared a pretty intense parable. And how do we know it's intense? Because the Pharisees and the Herodians right after this start talking about how can we kill him. It's pretty explicit. It literally says it right there in the verses before. If you look up just a little bit, you'll see right in the verses before, it says they're trying to kill him. They start creating plots to kill him. Now there's so much in that parable before around the misstewardship of God's world and the vineyards in which he has created and the selfishness and the fall and the brokenness and God's plan to redeem and restore the world. And his establishment of a new covenant and with new people coming and being given authority. There's so much in it, but they were clear that what he had just said was deserving of death. So now you can see what he has just said, and they're trying to kill him. And then it says later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, go back to 13, and to catch Jesus in his words. Now I want you to notice this, because sometimes when we read parables, we'll miss the context that's even spelt out here. What they're about to do is meant to catch him so they can kill him. All right, now the next section. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. (laughs) You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. 
but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? I wanted to pause here for a moment because if you just read this cold without understanding the context and you just start breaking words apart, you may go, what is the problem with this question? First, I want you to notice this. They call him teacher, and then they start flattering him. You're such a man of integrity. (laughs) Hey, y'all, you know they're trying to kill him. You're such a man of integrity. You're not even swayed by others. You're so strong. Basically, you don't care what anybody thinks. You're such a man of integrity. You're so strong. And I like this one. You don't even pay attention to who they are. Now, here's here's what I want you to hear. They're trying to kill him. And in doing so, they're trying to butter him up or flatter him. And there's nothing more dehumanizing than flattery. Because what you're trying to do is state things that you think are valuable. Notice, these would be things they would want to be known as. You just care about the truth, and all you care about is saying the truth, and you are so filled with integrity, and you don't care about what anybody says, and obviously... They don't know Jesus. And they don't want to learn from him. They want to kill him. And they're buttering him up for the next question. And the next question is, is it right to pay taxes? Now, here's why I think it is important for us to read this text, because if we don't, what we'll start to do is think anytime anyone asks us a question, it's our, our responsibility to be just truth tellers. Men of integrity, women of integrity, we just tell the truth. And we, in this culture, should just be really good at debate and answering questions. I feel the weight of God's church in this culture feels some heaviness that every time we get questions asked to us, we should just give good answers. We shouldn't care about what people think. We should just be people of the truth. But I, can, I, can I just help you with something? Not every question is is meant that people want to hear or learn. They may be trying to kill you. So whenever somebody's like, I'm just asking a question, and you feel some sort of guilt like you've got to give it, you have to be able to do what Jesus does in this moment and not just always take a question at face value. Because not everyone is just asking a question makes it very clear they're trying to trap him. And many of those things that we see in this text allow for us to get caught up in flattery. 
But hear me on this. Here's what flattery does to us. When people's like, you just only care about the truth. You don't care about people at all. All you do is just want to be a, a, a herald of the truth. You're such a person of integrity. That flattery may be something you want to hear. but it's dehumanizing you. Because do you think it's true that Jesus didn't care about anyone? Do you think it's true that Jesus only came to give the truth without grace? Do you think it's true that he is as one-dimensional as the Pharisees are flattering him in? But when Jesus speaks, look what he says back to them. I think verse 15. Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And here's what he says. Why are you trying to trap me? <laughs> Why are you trying to trap me? I, I love this question because Jesus just puts their intent right on the table. You think you're tricking me, but you're trying to trap me. Why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, go get me a denarius. And we can look at it. So they bring it to him. And here's what Jesus says back to them. Verse 16. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Now, when you see this word image, what you really should see is what was read by our sister uh, in, Gen in Genesis chapter 1. You should see we are created in his image and in his likeness. They're asking a question to try to trap him. And his response back is, go get the coins that you're asking about. Things that you created with your image on it. But here's what image does. We talked about this at the beginning. When you talk about image, you talk about your relationship to it and your representation of it. Those are the two things you talk about when you talk about the image of God. Your relationship to it and your representation of it. And so what he's saying is, whose image is on your money? And they say Caesar's. And how does he respond? Verse 17, Jesus says to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I want you to notice what Jesus does in the face of obvious political and financial debate. They're trying to trap him, to kill him, and he is asked a question. He knows, why are you trying to trap me? He goes and gets the money, and in the midst of it, he says, this is an image issue. Whose image is on this? This is a pointed question. 
What images have we created that have become so idolatrous to us that we want a special relationship with it and we want to represent it well in the world? He mentions two of them, money and political power. He mentions these two things just by showing a coin. And he says, Caesar's image is on it. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's because here's what happens. If Caesar's image is on something, you have a special relationship with him and you have to give back to him what is his. You have to represent him and give back to him what is his. This is a part of what happens when we are in idolatry. We have a special relationship with it. We give ourselves back to it and we represent this in the world. There are things in our lives that we are so in intimate with that we feel the burden in our lives to have a good reputation with it and to represent it well and protect it with all of our lives and we identify ourselves as that. But he says, give to Caesar what is his, but give to God what is his. God created us in his image and likeness. And one of the ways you can break his heart is by creating an image of him because there is no image that could represent him or fully uh, be representative of him. If you carve an image of him and try to create an idol of him, you will never fully be able to show him that God placed his image on humanity. If you want to see God's image in the world, he has placed his image upon us. And when we see this, it demands two things. Us in our relationship to him and us in our representation of him. And it changes the way we see people around us. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about the image and likeness of God, it's not just simply, I am created in the image and likeness of God, although it is beautiful. I think it is so beautiful when you see God has designed me. God has created me. God has put his breath in me. God has has given me a purpose in life. When you see that God created you, it does change the way you see yourself. So many of us in this room are looking to find ourselves in other images and other idols. And I love that in a world where everybody's trying to find themselves, the only way to find themselves in Christ is by losing themselves. You want to find yourself? Lose yourself. And when you lose yourself, you find yourself in Christ. In the one who originally designed you. A world around us trying to find themselves still hasn't found themselves. Because the only way you can is by seeing, oh, I am found. 
I am designed. I am loved. I am accepted. His image is on me. I don't have to try to earn something I already have in Christ. So yes, it does help with our identity, but it also helps in seeing our relationship with God. It changed my life, and I grew up in church. And I don't know if any of you relate to this, but I'll just share my own. I grew up with an image of God in my mind that he was always frowning at me. And I'm just on the edge, constantly trying to prove myself, and he's always disappointed with me. I always felt dirty and unclean until I saw what Christ did. And when the gospel was revealed in Christ, I saw myself as clean for the first time. I saw myself as loved and beloved by the, for the first time. I saw myself in him, and, and I got to see this beautiful relationship, and I turned, and, and I, when I saw him, I didn't just see a frown. I saw him singing over me, a smile, a special relationship, how he designed it, where he wants to come and walk with me in the garden. When I had the revelation of Jesus my whole relationship would change. My whole identity changed. But here's another thing that changes. The way you see other people. I think the biggest testament to our own personal fears of God is how we treat other people. We make too many enemies. We see too many people through their worst mistakes and their brokenness and their sin. We stand in this world filled with so much judgment and the church has a really bad representation that we think we're here to judge the world in Christ. And I didn't come to judge. I came to heal. I came to restore. I came to redeem. And if we are going to be the people of God representing him in this world, we're going to have to carry this heart where we see people as image bearers of God even if they're not representing him or even if they're not saved or, or even if they're not a part of his family. His image and likeness is on them even if it's distorted and marred and they've rebelled against it. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. Church, we must see who he is and who we are and whose we are so that as we live and walk through this world, we can see others the way God sees them. He's given us special eyes to see and represent him in this world. What this text does for me is it leaves me like they did, amazed at him. <laughs> amazed. In awe. When God answers their questions, they were trying to trap him. They walk away amazed. That's, that's a big change. <laughs> They're amazed. And when I read this text, I realize I have so much to be amazed by. 
And our prayer today as a beloved community would be these things. As we go to a time to meditate and to kind of sit in silence, here's some things I want to sit on our hearts before we come up and respond. One, I I want you to ask yourself this. What's on your coin? What's on your greatest treasure? What is it that you feel the greatest demand to be in good relationship with, to represent well? What idols may we have formed in our own hearts and minds that we care more about their image than we do God's image on us? Because as the Spirit reveals that to us, (laughs) brothers and sisters, we get to repent and turn to the one in whom we bear image of. First is, maybe some of you are struggling with self-righteousness and insecurity and pain, and you're having a hard time seeing a God who smiles upon you and loves you. And my prayer today, as you sit in that, if that's you, that God reveals to you your belovedness, that you are created in his image and likeness. Second would be this. Maybe there's some people in your life that you are really struggling to see the image of God in. And and, and they're giving you a lot of good reasons. (laughs) And today, maybe the Lord could show you a way to love even those who may be enemies in your life. Because the image of God is a revelation that God gives in Christ, who is the perfect image of God. And it requires for us, in prayer, to have the Spirit do what Jesus did to the Pharisees. Ask us questions back. Because some of us in our question answering of God may be unintentionally trying to trap him. And my prayer is that he may not answer the questions you have, but he'll answer, he'll ask the questions you need to be asked. That in prayer, open your heart and your mind up to listening because this uh, fullness of what it is needs to be uh, digested in prayer. It's not just by me preaching it. My prayer is that you'll meditate on it and maybe God will show you some things personally by His Spirit as He asks questions to your heart. And then in just a moment, and then when we leave this room, we need to respond. Uh, Respond in a way that says, God, show me. Not only those things of who I am, but show me the poor. Show me the outcast. Show me the enemy. Show me the ones that seem so far off. Show me the way you see those. And show me how to represent you. And image you into this brokenness and this polarization and this painful world. Could you close your eyes for a moment while I pray for you? And then right when I say amen.
you're going to have a couple minutes of silence. A couple minutes of just sitting and digesting what we've talked about today. And while I pray for you, can I pray for us? Because as a beloved community, my prayer is that we will recognize the image of God on us as the beloved community and on the other. That we will see the image of God and it will change our relationship with him, with us, and with others. And that that God will make us a people who live according to how we are originally designed. Father, I pray that today you would show yourself with a smile over my brothers and sisters. You love us. You love your people. You love the world that you've given your son. You've sacrificed for us. You are so good and so kind to us. So Lord, I pray that we would see in our mind's eye just a picture of your face and then Lord would you help us to lay down our insecurities fears and self-righteousness would you allow us to lay those down and could we see ourselves as the beloved in a special relationship with you I'm in awe that we get to have this relationship with you redeemed and saved and beloved I'm amazed. And God, could you turn our face towards Flagstaff? There is so much around us. So many who are hurting and lost and in pain. And God, don't let us represent anything else or image anything else but you. You have put your image on us. Let us give to God what is God's, and we are yours. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Let's sit for a moment.